Imagine yourself living in a small village in France in the late 1940s. And seeing an elderly man whom you've known for your young life. And you know this man fought in the Great War, but then because of his debilitation, had to watch while others fought in the Second World War. And now you and him and the rest of the town are thankful that finally you've been liberated by allies, but you look around and the town is decimated. And sure, freedom has come, but at what cost? And under what ruins now? And you look at this elderly man and you know while you might be able to see the town rebuilt because he's come to such maturity of maturity of age, he may not see normal return. Psalm 90 is a prayer of Moses. The Psalm is meant for us to imagine Israel in the time of the wilderness when the ruinous effects of sin has so damaged the people of God that under God's judgment, an entire generation would die in the wilderness. And day by day, thousands are perishing. And the worshipers may have come to the cusp of the edge of their 40 years of wandering and may see what's ahead of them, but there's Moses who could stand and look into the promised land but wouldn't see it, wouldn't walk into it. Like the aftermath of war, where you see ruins around you, but you may not know the rebuilding that comes and the restoration that will come later. Like the aftermath of war, sin also leaves, leaves ruins. And sometimes the ruin is so great that we're unsure if we'll actually see things restored to what they once were before. Psalm 90 teaches us to pray when we find ourselves there. The prayer of Psalm 90 is a primer for restoring the ruins left by sin. This might be the sin that, of the decisions that you've made and the damage it's caused. This might be the rubble that you're left trying to dig out of because of the decisions other people have made. Whatever it is, sin leaves ruins. And Psalm 90 is a primer for restoring the ruins left by sin. This psalm is going to offer us two things. First, it's going to offer us insight. It's going to help us grapple with questions that we may be feeling in our soul. Why did this happen? How did this happen? How can I understand this? How can we make sense of the ruin left by sin? It's going to offer us insight. And then if we're humble enough to accept the insight of Psalm 90, then insight will shift into instruction. If this is the way that things are, what can I do about it? How can we make sense of all this? What can we do about it? So let's first look for insight from the first section of Psalm 90. How do we make sense of this? Well, ultimately, all the way, the only way we can make sense of 
the ruin that sin leaves is before the presence of the Lord. That's where Moses starts, verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you have formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. This is where Moses starts in order to make sense, to understand the ruin of sin that's left around him. And in the following verses, from verse 1 to 6, we're going to observe a series of comparisons and contrasts with the nature of God and the nature of humanity that will develop insight and help us grasp us with the why. The first insight is this. God is infinite and our days are short. Really short. The Israelites had never known their own dwelling place. From the God time God cho- called his chosen people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and the tribes after them, they were sojourners. First they were sojourning in the wilderness in tents, and then they were sojourners in Egypt, and then they were enslaved for hundreds of years. They never knew a place that was own, even though God promised them their own place. And then after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, when they were on the cusp of actually reaching the place that God had promised, and Moses, knowing that he wasn't actually going to be able to get in there, he confessed and believed the Lord is our dwelling place. We may not yet have found the place we're supposed to be, but God is our place. With him, we're where we belong. And he is stable and strong. He compares God to mountains. Scripture often used mountains as a symbol of strength. But God is even more constant than the greatest pillars of strength and stability in the world. From everlasting to everlasting, the people of God would find security in the person of God, even though there was chaos around them. So here's the first contrast. In contrast to the one who is greater than the mountains, who are we, humanity, the children of man, the descendants of Adam. Verse 3, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. This kind of sounds like Genesis 3, doesn't it? After the effects of the curse of sin, God says this to humanity in Genesis 3, 9, by the sweat of of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. It's by the word of God that we were animated into life. It's by the word of God that we decay into the inanimate earth. God stronger and more stable than the mountains. A place of refuge and security when there's chaos all around us. Us, we're dust. God is infinite. Our days are short. How short are our days? Verse 4 to verse 6 then gives us a series of three metaphors to illustrate how short and how fleeting life really is. Look at it with me there, verse 4. 
For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or but as a watch in the night. To God, a millennium, a thousand years, goes about as quickly as from when you go to bed at night to when you need to go wake up for a bathroom break. And you wake up and you're just like, oh man, I got like no sleep. Am I actually going to get back to bed? To God, that's a millennium. So then how short are our days? Verse 5, you sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, in the evening it fades and withers. Our days is as short like a sweeping waters of a flood. Maybe some of you saw the images of houses just literally being carried away by Hurricane Fiona the past couple of days. Something that looked like it would stay and has a stable foundation, gone. Life is like a flood also. It can sweep us away, but the duration of life keeps going and doesn't stop. As soon as life begins, the countdown to the end starts. It sweeps away like a flood. It's, it's like a passing memory or dream. Maybe you dream often. I don't. When I do, I wake up in the morning and I'm just struggling. It's like, what was that about? I got this glimpse here and there, but that's life. When we all pass, our names may be recorded somewhere. Some tech giant will have all your data for all of eternity. <laughs> but you will be like a dream. And there'll be little remnants of things that you posted here and there, but who is this person really? It breaks loose like a flood. It passes like a dream. It's fading like grass. I was cutting my lawn or playing with my son in the backyard the other day, and I was looking around, and I was just like, geez, didn't I just let, just seed this like a couple months ago? <laughs> Where did all of the green go? Isaiah 40 says that the strength and the beauty, the greatest of strength and beauty of humanity, is only as great and only as strong as the grass. It's here and it's gone. Quickly it becomes lifeless, brittle, and dry. Do you feel the brevity of your life? Depending on your age, you may answer that in a different way. But even when you reach to elder years in your life, your life will be just as brief as it was before. And it will pass way quicker than you realize. The fleeting brevity of life can make life feel vain. It can make life feel ruinous. But the real ruin in Psalm 90 isn't just how short our days are, but it's that our short days are spent in the pain being under the wrath of God for the guilt of our sin. Sin leaves Ruins. Making sense of the ruin of our sin means we must go to the presence of God. And before the presence of God, we understand that our days are short, and we also understand that our guilt is clear. My guilt is clear. Your guilt is clear. God is righteous, and the guilt of our sin can't be voided. Look at verse 7 to 11 with me. It says, For we are brought to an end. By your anger, 
By your wrath, we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger or, and your wrath according to the fear of you? A lot of people don't like the taste of the theology of God's justice and anger and wrath. There was a teacher I had in high school that I got along with really well myself. I really got along well with him. He was always kind and not always understanding, even when I was pretty lazy of a student, even when I needed an extension, even when I was late with a class. He kind of just like, whatever, it's okay. And I enjoyed coming to his class. I liked that kind of relationship with him. But then I started to realize a lot of people didn't like him at all. And I started to recognize, because I had him the, the same, I had him every year in high school. I started to recognize once I got into grade 11 and 12, that he kind of had a preference for students who were athletes. Students that were athletes, he would always be a lot more generous and kind with. Students that were not, he would not have the same leniency towards. It was quite harsh towards. I realized this one day when me and another student who was an athlete both came in like 20 minutes late at the exact same time and he like kind of gave me a high five and then like reamed the other guy out. And then I kind of started to realize why people didn't like him. A lot of people don't like the idea with the anger of God, the wrath of God, but they don't see the necessity and goodness of God's just anger and wrath. It's actually rather surprising that the righteous anger of God makes so many people angry. We understand where justice fits in our relationships with one another, don't we? Like if we're going to have a mutually fulfilling relationships with one another, we need to trust that each other, we're going to strive to be good. And if someone isn't good or acts intentionally bad, we need to trust that there's, there's going to be legit consequences and that we're going to be able to treat the wrong fairly. But if someone does act wrongly towards us and then they get a free pass, we get angered because we know that's wrong. If we can't invest into a relationship like that, what kind of fulfilling relationship would we have with God who treated people with the same prejudice and the same partiality as my high school teacher treated people? But the Lord isn't just someone who's asking for respect in the classroom. God is someone who says that he is the only creature who's deserving of veneration as divine. See, in order for Israel to enjoy having the pleasure of being his treasured possession, in order for them to flourish in the land that God promised them, they needed to be true to God's ethical rules in 
his covenant that he made with Moses. But an unjust God who would allow unethical, unrighteous behavior to go on, or an unrighteous God who would act impartially and judge one people with a different standard that he has with others is not someone worth respecting, let alone worth worshiping. So why is God angry? Why does he become wrathful? Because in order for us to enjoy and find satisfaction in relationship with him, he needs to preserve his holy name. And if the Lord sees people made in his image, harming other people made in his image, or transgressing and blaspheming his holy name, a good God who wants you to enjoy in him is going to act with justice. It angers him. And the anger is expressed in wrath. His righteous judgments are our security for us to know him and to enjoy him as he's revealed himself to us. Do you take consideration of the power of his anger or his wrath? Now, this is a statement that I'm going to say that's true for me as it is for you. But we often are numb to it. Every thought, every desire, every deed that you know to be wrong, but you kept hidden in the darkness, is fully accounted for in the eyes and in the light of the presence of God. Everything you think your spouse doesn't see, everything you think you can hide from your parents, every time you've cleared your browser history, every thought, desire, and deed you convince yourself to be hidden in the darkness is fully accounted for in the light of God's presence. Who considers the power of his anger, or the wrath according to the fear of you. See, the trouble with a short life isn't just the shortness of our life. Maybe we'll have 70 years, maybe we'll have 80 years. However many there are, they'll be swept away like a flood, they'll be forgotten with a dream. The trouble with our short years isn't just the shortness of our years. The trouble of our short years is the bleak, cold frost of the guilt of our sin that lies heavy on our soul. But even worse than that, the real frigid pain on our soul is that we feel this pain, but we're numb to the reality of it. We refuse to believe that it's the result of our sin before holy God. Who considers the power of his anger or the wrath according to the fear of you? Friends, our days are short. Our guilt is clear. His wrath is fierce. We may be able to sense the shortness of our days. Do we sense the reality of our sin before holy God? And the reality of our sin and our guilt bleeds so deep into the fabric of our hearts, into the fabric of our society. At the top, we might feel the wrong that other people do to us and how others are guilty. And that's true. In many ways. Below that, we may feel the pain of the destruction of our own sin. 
that we have done things that have caused rubble and ruin all around us. But even deeper than that, which we may not realize, is the understanding that all of creation is subject to futility under sin. Nothing works the way it should. The curse of sin has permeated deep into the DNA of humanity and creation. Sin leaves ruin. Are we humble enough to accept this insight? Our days are short. Our guilt is clear. His wrath is fierce. This is what we understand when we come before the presence of God. If we're willing to accept this, if we can make sense of this and admit that, okay, I get it. My days are short. My guilt is clear. His wrath is fierce. What, do we, what can I do about it now? I haven't uh, flown recently. I've heard that Pearson is just an amazing experience these days. <laughs> I have been able to fly a good amount, and one of my, uh, like, especially the first times I started to fly, I actually kind of started to enjoy. I don't know. I don't know why. Weird me, but I kind of enjoyed the safety presentations that they did with the people in the aisles or whatever. It just seems so like rhythmic, almost like a dance and so melodic. And even if they're doing it in the French language too, they still knew all the parts and the right the same, beautiful. But the point of what, how you've been on a plane, you've seen this every single time. You can probably remember the exact sequence and all the way that it goes. This is how you do your seatbelt in. You lift up the buckle. If the lights go or the power goes out, the lights go on, come down, do something else. You can do it. You know it. But the point is of doing it so many times and doing it so specifically is that when the crisis actually comes, you're going to be in shock. And you need to remember the specifics. You, you don't want to think about what you're supposed to do in that moment. You want someone else who has come before you and thought about all the variables and made a plan to just show you how to do it. See, when we think about the ruin that sin has caused, you are not left in a place where you need to figure out all the specifics and make a plan by yourself. If we're willing to accept the insights and how we've made sense of this and understand why sin has happened, then when we come to the question of what can I do about it, be relieved that it doesn't land on you yourself. There are several practical things that we can do when we're surrounded by the ruin of sin, but it starts with this. Don't figure out on what you need to do, but trust what God has done. Trust what God has done. In order for God to turn towards us, not against us in anger and wrath, but towards us in mercy and love, the true justice of our sentence of sin needs to be served. And we are unable to serve it ourselves. God turns to us in mercy and in love when his anger and when his wrath are propitiated. Propitiation is a theological term that refers to the appeasement, the satisfaction, the satiation that allows God's wrath to be vented and executed and satisfied. It's done. Like a convicted criminal who serves their sentence 
in full, justice has been served, propitiated. In order for God to turn towards us in love and mercy, his wrath needs to be propitiated against sinners. And it was. When Jesus was agonizing before God in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night when he was betrayed, he knew what was ahead of him. And do you remember how he talked about what was ahead of him? He referred to what was ahead of him as a cup. A cup that he would need to drink. And he asked God, if it be your will, let this cup pass. It's likely that when Jesus was praying there, he was referencing the Psalms. Like Psalm 75, verse 6 to 8, it says, For not from the east or from the west, and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. What's that judgment like? For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup foaming with wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Jesus looked at what was ahead of him and the cup that he was to drink through the death that he was to die, he knew was him consuming to the last drop the wrath of God that sinners deserved. See, ahead of him wasn't merely the, the gutting betrayal of a friend or the bitter malice of the Sanhedrin. It wasn't merely the wretched brutality of Rome. Those were all agonizing. The real pain was the cup of the wrath of God that he was to drink, and he drank it in full for you. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. See, our days are short. Our guilt is clear. His wrath is fierce. But how do we say it in that song that we sing? His mercy is more. What love would remember no wrongs we have done? That's propitiation. Friends, your days are passing. If you are here and you do not know the Lord, you have not put your faith in Jesus, and you've been spending your life fearful of death because your days of passing, fear not. Christ died so that though you may one day die, you will have the hope of everlasting life. Believe that Christ's death was enough for you to be forgiven. Trust that in his resurrection, you will be raised to new and eternal life. Repent of your sins, and in that moment, your sentence will be cleared. His anger will go. And he will look at you with the same eyes that he looks at his own beloved son, Jesus Christ. Our days are short. His guilt, our guilt is clear. His wrath is fierce, but his mercy is more. And Christians, we know that us who are in Christ, who have been forgiven of sin, who are in his love, we know that even though the, the wrath of sin is gone, we know that the consequences of, of sin can still remain. Sin leaves ruins, and it takes time to rebuild the rubble of those ruins. Christian, believe again the sufficiency of Christ. Believe again in the hope that you have, and believe that he is able to change, 
that bleak, cold frost of sin and thaw it into spring. The first thing we need to do is trust what he has done. The second thing we need to do is get wisdom. Look at verse 12. It says, So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. See, if our days are short and filled with toil and trouble, then how do we make the most of them here and now? Well, that takes wisdom. And wisdom, where does it start? It starts with the fear of God. Do you know what the fear of God actually is in practice? In practice, the fear of God is a spiritual awareness. Here's a complicated definition that I'll explain, all right? The fear of God is an awareness of my sinfulness in the light of God's holiness that provokes within us an initial sense of terror which shifts then into an ongoing sense of reverence. It's like this. Um, practically, the living with the fear of God is kind of like practically living through a heart attack. If you feel a heart attack coming and the pain's in your chest, the first things you should do is call 911, chew two aspirin, and then pray. And then if an ambulance comes in time and gets you to the hospital, they put a stent in or they put a bypass, and it's likely you could survive through it. But initially, there's just like a terror of like, am I going to make it? Is this the end? I didn't fix things the way that I wanted to, and it could be gone. But then if you survive through it, and then through rehab, you may learn that though you may be genetically have been predisposed to heart condition because of family history, it's very likely that, that you could have like eaten your way into that heart attack. And all those times that you kept eating the way that you did, neglecting diet the way that you did, you were doing this to your own soul, to your own body. And then that terror then shifts into awareness that develops respect. And a wise person will recognize there's no way I can treat my body the way I did before. Living with the fear of God is the same thing. The fear of God is an awareness of my sinfulness in the light of God's holiness that provokes an initial sense of terror. My sin brought this wrath and this guilt but in the knowledge of God's mercy that I'm forgiven through the propitiation of Christ, that terror dissolves into a reverence that even though I'm guilty like this, you would forgive me still. And now the knowledge of God's mercy says, I can't treat my relationship like God, with God in the same way anymore. That's where wisdom starts. So then, how does that wisdom apply? For some of you, that wisdom means that you must finally repent. Some of you know that the rubble that you are around is because of the destruction of your own habitual foolish choices. Repentance entails three things. Confession, contrition, amendment. Confession, I agree with what God says about my sin. 
contrition. I'm sorrowed for the harm that my sin does against the name of God and against others. I agree it's wrong. I'm sorrowed of the effect amendment. I can't live the same way anymore. But then there are others of us who the rubble around you of the ruinous sin is less of what you've done and more that you've been caved in by the decisions that other people have made. What's the wisdom that you need? Well, number one, if you find yourself in an unsafe situation, then you must find yourself in safety. Find help from authorities and help from friends. But if you just find yourself in the lingering pain, you're not unsafe, but there's lingering pain of wrong, then maybe we need the wisdom of endurance. And the fear of God reminds us that as we may be wrongly mistreated, Christ also was wrongly mistreated. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 19 to 21 says, For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if you are beaten for it and you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For those of you who are being wronged by others, take heart. You're in the same place Christ was. And take heart. God is making all things new. But even once we've repented, and even while we are waiting, the rubble is still around us. So we need to trust what God has done. We need to get wisdom. And then we need to plead in prayer for change to come. At this next point in the psalm, at verse 13, it seems like they're in a place where confession has happened, but we're still waiting for change. And you're wondering now with the psalmist, with Moses, how long is this going to last? What can we do? How long will the bleak, cold frost of these short days thaw out? Well, God's word gives us a way that we can pray. With hope, with faith for real and lasting change. For as many days as God, as we've been afflicted, God can restore. Look at verse 13 and verse 17. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Make us glad for as many days of you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Yes, Establish the work of our hands. If you're still in the rubble, then plead with God that he would return, that he would restore you out of it. We are unable to do it by ourselves, and we need the Lord to intervene. And do you see the result of what can happen when God returns and what God intervenes? The circumstances might not change. But when God returns and God shines his face upon us, we can have glad hearts, and we can find real significance even in a vain world. See, our hope, our gladness isn't anchored for the Christian in our circumstances. Christian happiness is a result of our worship. Our worship that is anchored and grounded in the knowledge that God loves us. That's where we find our satisfaction. That's where we find our joy as we rejoice in him. 
And as the sun shines and we see who God is and he lifts us up to see through our circumstances to where God is, God's pity, God's steadfast love, that can satisfy us. That gives us reason to worship. That can make us glad again. And he can lift your eyes up. Turn to him. Plead with him. And he can turn a hard heart into a happy one. The change we can have is glad hearts, but it's also significance. See, in everything that they, in all the ruin of sin, it can make the most basic tasks feel meaningless. Why should I even care of my health if I'm going to be gone in a couple decades? Why should I even brush my teeth? Why should I even, why should I even care for my family? I'd probably do more harm than good to them. When we're surrounded by the ruin of sin, it, whatever our work is, it makes life feel vain. But Moses wanted their work to be established. Moses, Moses wanted their work to have significance. He wanted to know it matters. It makes a difference. Even though my days are short, this is worth it. And Moses believed that in order for them to find significance in their work, they needed to see God's work. And then as God's power of his redemption and his mercy and his grace, as that shone upon them, then there would be a convergence. That then they would be able to shape their day-to-day work against and according to God's work. That they would be a reflection of the Lord. And that's what we can do when we see God shine upon us again. Even though our days are short, whether you might be working in medicine or a homemaker or a data software engineer or retired. When we see God's work, we can allow it to shape our work. And even though our days are short and it'll be gone soon, you can have the confidence that it matters now. Because you're an ambassador for Christ. Even though you may be surrounded by the ruin of sin, God can make your hearts glad. God can restore to you a sense of significance. This is how we make sense of things. Our days are short. Our guilt is clear. His wrath is fierce, but his mercy is more. And when we are humble enough to admit that, we can then trust what God has done. We can act with wisdom. We can plead for change. And God will restore. But then this is the last thing we need to do while we wait. The last thing we need to do is to wait. While God is coming, we need to wait. In C.S. Lewis's novel, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, a little girl, Lucy, walks through this wardrobe and finds herself in a mystical land, Narnia but it's cold. It's bleak. And he finds a guy, she finds a guide there named Mr. Tumnus. And she explains to the little girl, it is winter in Narnia and has been forever so long. Always winter, but never Christmas. But when the savior figure of the book arrives, Aslan, so does the thaw. Christian, wait in hope. Sin leaves ruins. Our soul can be left cold and bleak and dark. But when Christ returns, 
he will make all things new. And even now, the light of the Son of God can warm the cold of your heart, though you feel ruined by sin. Let's pray.